The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number seven, and uh, we're going to return, of course, uh, through our studies here at the book of Daniel. And we have been in uh, chapter number seven. Now this will be week number three and kind of a culmination of an entire message through the entire book or sorry, chapter of chapter number seven. Uh, We looked at the first part and considered the fact that God is sovereign uh, over nations. And then, of course, then last week we discussed how God is sovereign over his kingdom. And uh, tonight we're going to discuss part three, if you wanted to call that, as we've been asking the question, who is in charge? With everything that's going on in the world and everything that's taking place, who is in charge? Is there anyone in charge? Well, the absolute answer is yes, God is in charge. And uh, not only is he uh, sovereign over nations, not only is he sovereign over his kingdom, but also he is sovereign in his judgments. And uh, of course, we are, uh, we are going to pick up in verse number 15 of chapter 7. And for the sake of time tonight, because there's still a lot to cover in the rest of this chapter, we're not going to read verse 15 through the end of the, of the chapter right now. We will read uh, segment by segment as we go along studying tonight. Uh, but I just want to draw your attention to where we will begin there in verse number 15, first and foremost. But we are con- reaching the conclusion of the chiastic structure of, of writing that we've been talking about over the past several weeks that began in chapter number 2 and concludes here with chapter number 7. Chapter 2 and 7 coincide with one another, chapter uh, 3 and 6, and then 4 and 5. They parallel with one another, of course, point, bringing bring it to the point and backing its way out, as you see it on the screen, and you've seen it over and over over the last several weeks as well. If, but nevertheless, the events that are unfolding here with the four beasts, and then of course the, uh, the last kingdom that is spoken of, this, we've already discussed that that would be the kingdom of God, his, uh, Jesus Christ, that millennial reign, and we'll talk more about that tonight, uh, but this parallels with that of chapter number two, because in chapter number two is where we find the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the statue, and uh, it started with the head of gold representing Babylon, and it ended with, that, uh, with the feet and the ten toes there, and the ten toes corresponding with the ten horns on that last beast found here in chapter number seven. And if any of this doesn't sound familiar to you, and you're thinking, I just think I'm not following along with how they correspond and such, I want to invite you to uh, go back and listen to the messages before. You can find them on our website. You can find them on almost any podcast uh, uh, platform uh, that you could find on your phone or on any device, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google uh, Podcasts, all of those things. We upload them there uh, normally at least Friday. Uh, they, w- they should be up there. They'll be up on our website. This one will be up on our website within probably 30 minutes of this concluding uh, tonight. And so you can find those if you'd like CDs. We can make CDs. I'm just saying, uh, don't. Don't struggle along if you haven't been able to comprehend and follow along. Go back and listen to some of the, the messages from the past so that we are all on the same page and able to study our, uh, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, and, and that we don't just fumble through it. But nevertheless, uh, we a couple weeks ago, uh, we learned that how God is sovereign over nations, and uh, we learned about the first three nations that would reign at what we are ca- during what we are calling this age of the Gentiles. The age of the Gentiles, of course, was uh, the was the beginning uh, with it began with Babylon. We learned about it first in chapter number two, and we said there were some characteristics about this age that will help us to know when it began and when it will ever end, or what has to take place before it will ever end. And these characteristics are these, it says, we said that it would be a a time for Israel to be scattered outside of their land. That would be the beginning of it, that's with Babylon, of course. Secondly, their city, Jerusalem, would be under Gentile domination, and it would remain as such throughout the entirety of this age of the Gentiles as well. And as we know today, even though there are Jewish people in Jerusalem, they don't 
have control over the entire city themselves still. Uh, as we said even last week, uh, the Muslim's Dome of the Rock sits right where the temple was constructed. And so they don't even have that land to themselves. Uh, of course, the fighting over the Gaza Strip and all of those things help us to understand uh, that that is still in place even today. And then thirdly, the age will continue until the Messiah's second coming. We saw that with uh, the statue and it ending at the toes, the ten toes, and then all of a sudden a rock that was not cut by human hands fell from the sky and destroyed the statue. That is the picture of Jesus Christ coming and uh, setting up his millennial reign here on this earth, his second coming. We'll talk more about that even here tonight. But again, all of these things represented uh, in these nations in chapter 2 by the statue and the stages on the statue and uh, then, of course, in chapter 7, with the beasts that are, that are uh, spoken of. The first beast here in chapter number 7 was that of Babylon. And it was repre- Babylon was represented, uh, of course, uh, uh, by that of, a, of a, a lion with eagle's wings. And then the second, that of a bear that was raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, of course, representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the third one that was spoken about uh, was a leopard with uh, four heads and four wings, corresponding with that of the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, which would uh, ultimately conquer the Medes and the Persians, of course. Then uh, we've, we've, we came to the fact that God is sovereign over his kingdom in the fact that we are introduced to this fourth beast that would be the segue into the beginning of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And like I said, we'll mention that more as we go on tonight. But first thing that we have to recall about Daniel's vision of this fourth beast is that this beast was not like anything else he had seen. The other ones, he could say, I likened it unto a lion with eagle's wings. I, he was able to say, I could liken it unto a, uh, a bear and, and uh, how it was kind of uh, leaning on one side, representing that, the fact of the Medes and the Persians, the Persians being stronger than the Medes, even though they were ruling as one. Uh, then, of course, the, that of a leopard with uh, the heads and the wings and such. But still, it had, it, it, it had likenesses that he could compare to. But we read in chapter 7 that this fourth beast was like n- nothing else he's ever seen. And he can't compare it even uh, to, to living beasts to be able to describe it. Uh, the kingdom, this fourth beast, devours the prior kingdoms we've already read. Uh, confirming that this kingdom would be one that follows after the Greek empire. And then we also learn, secondly, that this beast has iron teeth, which reminds us of the iron legs of the fourth uh, kingdom in the statue of chapter number two. And then, of course, the ten horns, that reminds us of the ten toes of that same statue as well. All of this helping us to realize, as we discussed last week, that God is sovereign over his kingdom because of his internality, because of his purity, because of his sentence, because of his patience, because of his man, and because of his plan. These are all things we discussed last week. And again, if any of it doesn't click with you or sound familiar, I do encourage you to go back and listen. But even if we were able to say, I can remember all of those things we've discussed so far from chapter number seven, obviously we all still have more questions that need answered. And so did Daniel. Because we pick up here in verse number 15, and we read, it says, And I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them that stood by and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. First and foremost tonight, again, as we've already, I've already mentioned it, but I want us to, to, to nail it down in our minds and in our hearts, the fact of this. Point number one is that God is sovereign in his judgment. He's sovereign in his judgment. We're going to begin to get some interpretation here tonight, and we're going to learn some things about this. But we notice, just like you and I have questions still about what does all this mean, and what is taking place, and, and what do these certain elements that just now have been revealed to us uh, begin to mean, and, uh, and ha- what do we know about them? And just like we have questions, Daniel has questions as well. And here we notice his inquiry about these things, that we've, as we just read in verses 15 and 16. Daniel says that his spirit was distressed by the vision, and of course, for obvious reasons. He's seen this great beast that he can't even really describe by anything that he's ever seen in the world before, and it does 
pretty amazing things and pretty devastating things, actually. And uh, just as Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 had been disturbed by his dream, Daniel was preoccupied with seeking an answer to his vision as well. It seemed as if, though, uh, when God sends a message by dreams, the receiver always has a sense that that dream is important. Nebuchadnezzar woke up and said, this has to mean something. Daniel, in the midst of his dream, is seeking for answers and trying to figure out what's going on. Now, I don't know that God uses dreams like today as he did back then. I would never say that he can't because I don't want to put that limitation upon God. I don't know that he uses the dreams in the same way he did back then. But nevertheless, if he does, one would have to take away the fact that if God was ever going to send us a dream and try to use it for us to know something about him, we would need to be able to recall the details of the dream. And I don't know about you, but when I dream, I remember the randomest things about the dream, but that's about it. But nevertheless, Daniel's able to recall in vivid detail all of the things that are being brought to him in this vision. Nebuchadnezzar, the same in chapter number two, as we read there as well. And so Daniel knows that this dream is important, this vision is important. In fact, that even so, while he was still in a dreaming state, Daniel addresses, the Bible tells us, someone else that was observing all of these things that take place. Who this person he addresses is, it doesn't exactly say, but in the fact that that person was there, and the only other people that are spoken of other than the beast that is there and the other beasts that were destroyed are those thousands upon thousands, which we went back to Revelation last week and said, those are more than likely angels. So I would conclude that he went to an angel that was able to see all these things taking place and said, what does this mean? What is going on? And we begin to read that this angel kind of gives some instruction and some interpretation as to what this dream means. Wouldn't it be good for you to have someone that could interpret your dreams for you? I mean, you could go to someone after or even in the midst of the dream and say, why in the world am I in the sixth grade and coming to school in my underwear? Like, why am I the only one that has that type of? uh, But anyway, uh, why? Why is that? What is the deal? Wouldn't it be good to have someone to answer that for you? But this is what Daniel does. He's in the midst of the dream. He goes to one who's seeing this take place, more likely an angel. And he says, what does this mean? In this case right here, we find the one who had previously been able to interpret dreams, needing someone to interpret his. Now, it's interesting to consider also the fact of how God uses and works through interpreters. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream in chapter number two, it stuck, it stuck out to him. And he, it, I mean, it was so vivid and he could recall ever, uh, so much about it even uh, that, uh, that he, he realizes this is important. This is, this is something that is trying to tell me something and teach me something. And so he goes and he asks for interpretation to be able to get it, to get the, the, the meaning of it. Of course, I guess it is in chapter number two where he, he asks his interpreters first to give them the, him the dream, then the meaning. But nevertheless, he knew there was something important about it and needed someone to interpret it for him. When Daniel came along, what was the ultimate truth that was was being able to be received by nebuchadnezzar about this that this was a message from god it was a divine message in fact here when daniel goes to this angel and asks for the angel to help interpret it by getting an answer from an angel again gives proof that this is a divine message and not the fact that daniel had just eaten some nasty pizza the night before right And so all I'm saying is it proves again how God would use these visions. And if he did use a vision or a dream, that he would use an interpreter often to prove or give validity uh, to the fact that this was a divine intervention uh, and that they needed help to uh, understand the message, which validated that it was from God. So we see Daniel's inquiry there in verses 15 and 16. But notice in verses 17 and 18, the dream's interpretation. In verse number 17, here the angel begins to give interpretation. He says, these great beasts, which are four, 
or four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Verse number 18. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, as I mentioned, in this case, we don't know the, the exact identity of this one who gives the interpretation. But as we said in the fact that the only ones that have been spoken of of being here are the beasts that have already been discussed and these thousands upon thousands that we have come to the conclude that are more than likely angels. And so therefore, I would suggest that it would be an angel that he is speaking to. And in the interpretation here, we find confirmation of all the previous interpretations that were proposed from the earlier passages we've discussed, particularly chapter number two. First, the four beasts are four kingdoms, the same kingdoms that we spoke about in chapter number two. The final kingdom that is spoken of here that comes after the Ancient of Days is the same kingdom that comes through the rock that is not cut out by any uh, human hands at the end of chapter number two. And uh, this is that of the end of the Gentile kingdom. Again, there's no surprise to us here, and it's no surprise even, I believe, to Daniel. But nevertheless, Daniel had other things he needed to have cleared up and understand, just like you and I still do tonight as well. And so we've seen Daniel's in, uh, inquiry, we've seen the dream's interpretation, but notice in verses 19 through 22, Daniel's interrogation. In verse number 19, then I would know the truth of the four beasts, which was diverse from all the others, exceeding dreadful, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass, which devoured, break in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet, and of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom the uh, three fell, uh, even of the, that horn that the eye, that had eyes, I'm sorry, and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows. Verse number 21, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Daniel's attention, of course, through all of this is continually brought back to this fourth beast, this last one in which is just devastating. He can't come up with a, 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 a description really of it, uh, like anything that we've ever saw before. And, uh, and he was drawn to this because of how unique this beast was. And no doubt this was purposeful by the Lord. This is what the Lord wanted to be able to get across to Daniel. He had spent uh, a good deal of time on the, fr on the, on the rest of the beast in, and uh, explaining some of those things uh, and even allowing Daniel to have the interpretation of those things in chapter number two. But now he's trying to give more detail to this final section or the final kingdom that will be in rule and reign at the end of these this age of the Gentiles, the ending of the, the uh, correction or punishment on God's people. And uh, because of that, because of its uniqueness, uh, and the fact that God desired for it to be unique in a way that would draw attention to it, uh, Daniel's attention was no doubt drawn to it, just as we have our attentions drawn to it tonight. Like, what is this even talking about? And what does all of this mean? In particular, Daniel wanted to know about the horns, the ten horns, first and foremost, and then in particular about that eleventh one that rises up. Now, notice here, though, as we come along, and after he asks for some understanding from this angel, that Daniel begins to press harder to this, this angel and say, give me some information. I want to know about this. He gives us more information than he had given us before about that 11th horn. We've already read about it and how he spoke and said great blasphemous things and uh, great destruction came from it. But notice he goes into greater detail here even now onto what this 11th horn do does about its boastful behavior. He adds that this 11th horn is now waging war uh, against the saints. We read that in verse, um, uh, verse number 20, I think it is there. Um, very great things, I'm sorry, verse number 21. And beheld the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. Now, let me state this tonight, that that word saints there is not referring to some elite class of, of God followers. 
There are certain denominations, for instance, like the Catholic Church, that would maybe bestow sainthood upon certain individuals because of their works and because of the things that they did while they were here on this earth and such. And, but my friends, when the, when the Bible uses that word saint, it is just simply referring to someone who has believed in God, who has put their faith and trust in, in the Lord. And uh, we would call them saved in our terminology today. We would call them believers or children of God. And uh, so we find here that what Daniel goes on to give us more information about is not only that this 11th horn, uh, the, the, the beast that it's a part of, or that last kingdom that it's a part of, not only destroys or takes care of the other three that came before it, uh, supersedes it, if you may, uh, but this 11th horn not only uh, destroys three, which we'll talk more about in a moment, first and foremost, he wages war against God's people. And uh, we, we continue on, and, and we find that uh, the end of the age of the Gentiles uh, at the end of it, an 11th horn is trying to kill believers, and Daniel tells us that he is prevailing, that he's able to overpower them. That is that this 11th horn is succeeding in killing believers. But the, the, the horn only has power for a certain amount of time. Notice there in verse number uh, 21. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. But notice verse number 22. Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the who, church? To the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. See, so this horn, this 11th horn, is attacking uh, God's people and even overwhelming them, killing them even. Uh, but interestingly enough, Daniel says that the saints, which, and then also I believe this would include those who had already been overcome or killed, are then given power or the ability to overcome and take possession of this earthly kingdom in other words those who were killed by the 11th horn lived again and in their living they took back the kingdom that the fourth beast and his 11th horn had fought to obtain so the 11th horn may have won a battle or two here or there but what the scripture is telling us is that this 11th horn is not going to ultimately win the war does it sound familiar to anything that we've ever heard in, in prophecy before? Of course it does. And so the saints and their king, which is Jesus Christ, they win in the end. And, and that's the whole thrust, if we wanted to pull away from this, is the fact that God's in control. He's sovereign, and he's sovereign in his judgment. We might wonder why he would allow such persecution and pain and turmoil and, and troubles to take place. And we might not be able to answer that question uh, with a straightforward, factual, I know this to be true here today. But one day when we get to, get to glory and see him face to face, we'll understand it better by and by. But we have to understand this to, tonight, though, that in the end, we win. And he is, when he chooses to bring his judgment is ultimately his prerogative because he's sovereign in his judgment. And this now, be, this now brings us to the heart of this chapter. The angel finish, finishes his interpretation of the meaning of these new symbols that we've come to, to uh, point out here tonight as we've gone through the rest of this chapter. Notice with me, not only have we seen Daniel's uh, inquiry, we've seen Daniel's interpretation, we've, I'm sorry, the dream's interpretation, we've, we've seen Daniel's interrogation, but notice the dream's interpretation concluded in verses 23 through 28. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten, ten horns uh, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise and another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of times of time. But the judgment shall sit, but the judgment shall, shall sit and they shall take away his dominion uh, to consume and to destroy it unto the end. 
and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cognitations much troubled me, and my countenance was changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. So the angel interpretations, the angel's interpretation, it fleshes out uh, the last days of the fourth, this fourth kingdom in very interesting detail. Um, and so as we're going to see, these details actually map perfectly to the later prophecy that is given by John the Apostle in, uh, in, in Revelation. But first notice in verse number 23, the angel says in verse number 23 that the fourth kingdom is a different type of kingdom. We've discussed the, the first three. We've discussed Babylon. We've discussed the Medes and the Persians. We've discussed that Greek empire uh, by, that started with uh, Alexander the Great. But notice verse number 23 tells us about this fourth kingdom or the last kingdom that concludes the age of the Gentiles. It's different than the previous three. Notice verse number 23 again. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. It's different in comparison to the three that came before it. And this reminds us, of course, of, this, of the description of the statue found in chapter number two that we've already spent plenty of time discussing. But for the sake of remembering, I want to draw your attention back to Daniel 2 and verses 40 through 43. So if you want to go back there and you look in your Bibles, you can do that or just follow along and listen as I read. But Daniel 2, verse 40 through 43. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all things... Uh, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with uh, miry clay. Verse number 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they, they uh, shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, and they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. But notice here the description of the fourth kingdom will consist of alliances that, we, that we, as we read will be broken apart, only to be joined back together in new or different ways. When we studied chapter number two, we concluded that the fourth kingdom was different than the prior three and that it wasn't a monolithic kingdom um, or government or empire. It began as the Roman Empire, which itself went through uh, numerous phases of its own existence, but eventually it broke up into pieces, which later recombined in various alliances. And even today, we see this pattern, pattern continuing. Just as the alliances have come uh, and gone and changed, and uh, so has the names by which they call themselves. But in all cases, this fourth kingdom continues to exist and to, and to exert its controlling authority over Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Now here we come to chapter number 7 of Daniel, and we see the angel just confirming this pattern again as we read in verse number 23, that it's going to be diverse and, and that it's going to devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. This kingdom is different than the rest of the kingdoms, and so we should not try to, see, to find one single nation, one single kingdom, or one single government to represent this fourth beast or to represent the ending of this age of the empire uh, or not empire uh, of the uh, gentile i'm sorry um it's different than the rest of them it's different than the other three that came before this one uh, this is one of the primary mistakes that interpreters will make trying to label this fourth kingdom in some type of a historical term for instance uh, an, an amillennialist, uh, which is one who doesn't believe in the literal 1,000-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, uh, they commonly make this mistake. They would hold that the fourth kingdom uh, began, yes, with the Roman Empire, but was nothing more than the Roman Empire. And so therefore, when the Roman Empire disappeared, the age of the Gentiles ended, and therefore this leads them to conclude that we are now living 
in the promised kingdom that would come with that last, you know, the, break, the, the rock breaking it up or the ancient of days as is spoken of here in chapter number seven. This is a wrong interpretation for many reasons, biblically speaking, but in particularly, uh, there's one reason found here in Daniel, and that is the fact to assign this fourth beast or this fourth kingdom to solely the Roman Empire only tries to make this fourth beast and this last empire to be like the three that previously came before it. Unfortunately, though, when we do that, we have not read what Scripture states. Scripture clearly says in verse number 23 that this last one is diverse. It's different than the three that came before it, so we should not try to make it fit into the same mold. We're not trying to fit a square peg into a round hole with this one because it is different, and we should not try to apply all of the things we've seen about the other three to this last one because the Bible clearly says that it's different. The meaning of the angel's words found in verse number 23, and of course the interpretation of Daniel 2, tells us to look for something unlike anything we had seen before. Specifically, the fourth kingdom period uh, may start with a monolithic power as in Rome, but it doesn't end that way. After Rome, the fourth kingdom lives on, dividing and recombining in new alliances. These alliances being formed from among the crushed pieces from the earlier kingdoms and part of it as well as it goes along. Then in verse number 24, it goes on even further to explain how this kingdom will not be just one kingdom. It will not be monolithic, but it will be, a, be made up of many different ones, in particular 10. Because verse number 24 tells us about the 10 horns. And the 10 horns out of this kingdom are 10 kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Okay, so there's several things that we need to pull out from this. One, this is a perfect example of what we've spoken of in the past about, help, uh, about us trying to interpret Scripture and letting Scripture interpret itself. We said whenever we come to a symbol that we don't know exactly what it means, the first thing we do is look within that same verse to see if the Lord, uh, if the Lord uh, describes it there. If he doesn't, you go ahead or behind it within that same chapter to see if he does there. If, it does, if it's not found there, then stay within that same book, uh, behind or ahead, see if he does there. If he doesn't, then it's going to be found somewhere in Scripture, but we don't just pull and cherry pick an interpretation that we want it to make and say, well, this symbol means this. It's always going to have its interpretation within Scripture. Here in this case, when it comes to the ten horns, within the very same chapter, we get the blessing of being told what the ten horns are. And the angel says the ten horns are ten kings. And then the 11th is a king, but it's not just like the other 10 kings, though, because it says it's diverse in that as well. And so the, this extra horn, it says, is also a ruler, as the symbol suggests, but he's not like the rest. And uh, we wonder maybe in what ways he might be different. Well, unfortunately, we don't get all of those details right now. But I'll tell you this, chapter 9 and chapter number 11 of Daniel gives us more information. And so that's something else you can look forward to as we go along throughout the rest of this time. We also get more information throughout the New Testament about this 11th horn, in particular in the book of Revelation. But for now, the angel just simply tells us this, that this horn, this 11th horn, will subdue three of the existing kings or of the existing ten that are there. This detail alone confirms in my, in my estimation that these ten kings must be contemporaries. He takes and destroys three of them. So therefore, the ten that are there must be ruling at the same time. They must be contemporaries. So if we try to apply any other type of meaning to them, then we, we're going to miss the mark because the Bible says that three of them are at once humbled or destroyed, subdued, it says. That, that word subdued has the idea of humbling. And so these kings were brought low, taken out of power. And apparently this 11th king uh, doesn't need to humble or take out of the power of the other, other seven uh, since presumably, I guess, they don't oppose them. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But once this 11th king has cons consolidated his power, he begins to go, uh, uh, go to war against God himself and the saints of God, which are God's believers. During this time, he will intend or try to um, make changes 
the Bible says, to times and laws. So what laws? What does he mean by times? The Bible doesn't necessarily 100% say what that is. Giving what we know and what we're experiencing, even in our world today, there's probably going to be an attack against the laws of religious freedoms, uh, whether or not we can worship publicly, even to the extent of possibly uh, making a ruling of any professing Christians would be put to death. Uh, that would be an idea. It does, the Bible doesn't say clearly. That's a speculation on my end. I'll be upfront and, and straight about that. Uh, I don't know particular, but I would assume that to be the case. What's he mean by times? That he's trying to make a change in times. Well, one thing that we do know is the fact that our calendar right now is based off of what? Our first, uh, the, the, our Lord's first coming, coming, his first advent. And the fact that our calendar is based off of that, an attack against that would be attack against God himself there, no doubt. Also, it's interesting to note, we've not gotten there yet, we're about to get to speak about it, but the time, times, and times, the, the divided times. I believe that tells us about a time frame in which we could know that the second coming, millennial reign of the Lord, is going to come. So if he messes up the calendar, what's the Bible say about bringing a strong delusion for people not to believe? That could be part of the delusion, possibly, that he's messed up the calendar for people not to realize the time frame in which the Lord will return. Nevertheless, again, a little bit of speculation on my end. I'll be honest about that, uh, but just some things to ponder and to think about there. And uh, so nevertheless, the angel then goes on to say this, that the king will have his way on earth for a period of time, and specifically, as we said, a period of time and times and of dividing of times. Now, anyone who has done any study in prophecies and read the book of Revelation, this is a phrase even that's familiar from there as well. Uh, it's simple, a simple, uh, uh, a simple uh, 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 mathematic equation, if you want to put it that way. That word time is, could be represented by the number one. The words times, plural, represented by the number two. And then divided time, not times, plural, but divided time, by 0.5. So if you take it and add it together, one plus two is three, and plus 0.5 is 3.5. And uh, if we take that to, is what I believe to, be speaking of years as we compare it to the book of revelation uh, we define we find that it describes a period of time of three and one half years so the 11th horn reigns over the earth complete control persecuting the saints and opposing god for a period of three and a half years this is what daniel meant earlier when we've read that the ancient of days was set upon his throne and ready to give judgment but he allowed for a time for the beast to remain in control. God is in his rightful place. No one has overthrown him, my friends. And for a period of time, he's given Satan free reign. And at the very end of this age of the Gentiles, we are going to find that he gives the Antichrist a period of exactly three and a half years. No more and no less, my friends. Three and a half years to have total control over this earth. And then it is going to be termination time for him. That is what the Lord meant, or, or, or the angel and, and uh, Daniel here means when he gave them a little or brief time. The ancient of days is already sat for judgment and the sentence has been decreed, but for a short time the king is allowed to continue. So then the final thing that the angel describes is the coming judgment and a kingdom to follow in verse number 26. In verse number 26, the angel says, the courts uh, sit for judgment and the 11th king's dominion is taken away and he is destroyed forever. In his place, of rule, uh, in his place rule of the whole earth is handed over to the saints or the people of God uh, and we will live in this kingdom with our God and we will serve and obey him as we went down through the rest of this chapter. Now before we leave and before we close tonight, uh, I want to compare what we've learned in chapter 7 of Daniel with some events that we read about in Revelation 13. 
And so if you want to take your Bibles and go there in Revelation 13, uh, we're told the coming, uh, that a coming world ruler called the beast, uh, that he, one that will conquer the entire earth. And so with, as we read in verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 13, consider all the things we've already discussed about this fourth beast and the ten horns, specifically about that eleventh horn that rose up out of this beast um, as we read out of Revelation 13, verses 1 through 5. Verse number one says, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Does that sound familiar? Because that's exactly where these beasts rose up from in Daniel's dream here in chapter number seven. And he says, uh, out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horn, ten crowns and upon his head, the name of blasphemy. And the beast, which I saw was like unto a leopard. Sound familiar? And his feet were like uh, 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 feet as of a bear. Sound familiar? His mouth of a lion, sound familiar? And, uh, and the dragon gave him power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there, gave, and there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, the beast, this beast of a, of a man is described as having ten horns with ten crowns. And notice it came out of the sea as we spoke about of Daniel chapter 7. The beast came out of the sea there as well. Notice particular, uh, in particularly here that the beast is constructed of parts of all the other beasts that came before it. Uh, that we read about in chapter number 7 of Daniel as well. He had ten horns upon which sat ten crowns. And clearly these details are intended to connect Revelation 13 with Daniel chapter number 7. Then at some point this leader is killed. And yet after a time, his fatal wound is healed, that we, as we just read in verse number 13. In other words, he was resurrected. As a result of this miraculous resurrection, the world is amazed and begins to follow this man, thinking this man to be completely all-powerful. And after this event, he begins to boast arrogantly, the Bible says. And notice that his time in the spotlight is found at the last part of verse number 5. And it was for a span of 42 months. Now, I'm no mathematician. Does anybody want to tell me how many months or how many years time is 42 months? Three and a half years. Man, you guys are smart. Uh, but of course it is because we've already been told in Daniel 7 that he would have a time, times, times div a time divided, one, two, plus 0.5, three and a half. And so we find 42 months and three and a half years, these are talking about the same exact events, the same exact person, the Antichrist himself. He comes into power in the final three years, or the three and a half years of this fourth kingdom, which is also the final three and a half years before Christ returns. And he goes by many names in the Bible. We find him as the 11th horn. We find him as the beast. Later in chapter 9 of Daniel, Daniel will call him the prince to come. Uh, Paul calls him the son of destruction and the man of lawlessness. John labels him as the son of perdition. And most famously, as we've already discussed him, as the Antichrist. He rules the entire world, that final half of the seven-year tribulation period. And he is able to gain rule over the entire world, defeating the ten kings that are in his day, so that he is ultimately the one that is in a superpower over the entire world. Now, go back to the fact that he had to... that. We read in Daniel that he subdued or humbled three of the ten. Could it be that possibly that three of these kings would not bow to his power? And therefore they came up against him, giving him a fatal wound in the head that killed him, thinking that they defeated this, this man. Then after a period of time, him raising from the dead and then humbling them or obliterating them, taking them out of power. That being the, uh, the ability for him to be able to proclaim to the entire world, look at who I am. Even claiming pretty much to be the Messiah himself. And we are learning much about this man called the Antichrist. This one who is uh, this 11th horn. But how is he able to do all of this? Where does he get his authority? Where is he getting this power? Well, in chapter 13 of Revelation in verse number 2, we're told that the dragon gives the, his power to this beast 
enabling him to, re- to, to resurrect and command the world's obedience. In Revelation 12, we're told about who this dragon is. And we're told that this dragon is Satan himself. He brings this man, this antichrist, this beast into power. And uh, through a, a coup, he takes control of the ten kings. Daniel says he humbles three of the ten. And Revelation says that he's killed and then resurrected at the midpoint of the tribulation. At this point, though, the beast uproots those three kings while the other seven fall in line. And Revelation 17 explains it this way. Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So the ten toes in Daniel chapter number 2 and the ten horns in Daniel chapter number 7 both point to a confederacy of ten kings that rule the world. Revelation confirms that these men rule at the same time in history uh, at some point in the future, because it hasn't happened yet. No time in our history, no time even at this present, has there ever been ten kings ruling at the same times in that way, in that same authority. And, but, so the, and also, they're ruling just shortly before the return of Christ. They exist for one purpose. Their purpose is to enable the Antichrist to rise, and uh, when they give him their power to him, that is the final state of this fourth kingdom. Therefore, we know that the second coming of Christ cannot happen tomorrow. Because these three and a half years have not even started yet. But one might say, Pastor, what about uh, statements like found in Matthew 24, 36, where uh, it tells us that no man knows the hour of his coming and, uh, and no one or even the angels or the son of God himself doesn't even know when he's coming. But you're telling me right now that we can know that he is not coming tomorrow. As I even said last week, let us not mistake his second coming with his coming for his bride, the, the rapture. The rapture is what is being spoken of in Matthew 24. The rapture is what is being spoken of when it is said that he comes as a thief in the night, that no man knows the hour, that not even Jesus Christ himself, only God the Father knows when he will send his sons to call, call his, his own. And so the rapture of the church is imminent. It could happen at any moment, but we do know without a doubt that the second coming, the millennial kingdom of Christ, could not happen tomorrow. Because one, we're not in the tribulation period, nor have the three and a half ending years of the great tribulation where the antichrist is ruling and reigning have has it taken place yet so we understand these things as i close tonight now that we have ended the chiasm we have a a clearer understanding all right i want to say that we know everything that's just that would not simply be the case we have a clearer understanding though of the age of the gentiles it is a period that god brought to pass judgment against his own people, as we've already discussed. It will be many centuries of Gentiles ruling over Israel. The period is marked, though, by four major empires. Daniel saw the arrival uh, of the first two. We are living somewhere near the end of the fourth, I believe. Uh, But despite subjects, sorry, despite subjecting Israel to this age of the Gentiles, the Lord has not forgotten them. He's not forgotten them. He will continue to act to preserve a remnant among Israel. And when they are persecuted by Gentiles, the Lord will always be their strength. Daniel and his friends experienced this lesson personally. Consider the, the three men in the fire and Daniel in the lion's den. Both persecuted by an ungodly Gentile king, but God was their strength and their shield and their protection. And finally, the fact that the Gentile rulers have control over Israel doesn't mean that they act with, that, with impunity. God himself retains his sovereignty over every ruler on earth so that even as Gentiles will command Israel, God commands the Gentiles. This is the final assurance to Israel that God is not moving to destroy them, but he is moving to discipline them. And so that he might also extend mercy to the Gentile as well. What do we take away from that tonight? That the same thing is absolutely true for every single one of us. 
while all of the promises that are made to Israel cannot be applied to the church or America or us today as individual Christians necessarily, the same principles and the same truth that God is in control, and when he allows a wicked, ungodly ruler, whether it be a president, whether it be a, a king, whether it be some type of ruler of any kind, when he allows it, he has not forgotten us, he has not lost his sovereignty, he is still in control, and it is not necessarily a move for the destruction of his people, but more along the lines of an allowance of discipline about his people as well. And can I remind you about this as we consider the times in which we're living I mean, I don't know about you, but I seem to get these messages through Facebook like daily with all these conspiracy theories and all this craziness that's going on. And just wait, you know, stay in your house for the next week and a half or whatever, because the military is going to go around and this is going to happen. And, but everything's going to work out OK if you are on one guy's side and if you're on the other guy's side, it's, you know, too bad for you. And then you're hearing from other people that, hey, everybody who's on one guy's side, you better watch out because they want to line you up and execute you and all these types of you get, I'm getting it all the time. But can, it, regardless of what happens to be true, can I say this and remind you of this? Don't be depressed, Christian. Because someone, listen to me, someone has to live in the times just before the ending of this age. And if I'm living in the times just before the ending of this age, that means I'm just one step closer to heaven. I'm just one step closer to my home. I'm just one step closer to seeing my Savior face to face. And it might be some bad things that are going on, and it might be some craziness, and it might not be something that I even want necessarily. But even if I'm going through it, my friends, understand somebody has to for it to all come to an end one day. And if it's me, then bless God, praise Him that I get to experience it so that He might be able to be ushered in sooner. All I'm saying tonight is this. Who's in charge? Like we've said the last three weeks, God is. Because He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over his kingdom, and he's sovereign in his judgment. Why does he allow things to happen in the way that they happen? I can't necessarily give an exact answer to all of them, but I do know this. The reason why he does is because he's God and because he's sovereign, and he's got a grand plan that is greater than anything that we could ever think of of our own. Uh, Father, we do thank you tonight for this time in your word. And I would ask, God, that you would just help us to consider this fact that if everything goes crazy in our world and it seems like utter despair is upon us, that we ought not hang our heads but lift up our heads, Lord, for our redemption draweth nigh. God, I ask now that you'd help us to live with an eternal uh, viewpoint and an, an eternal uh, focus, not a temporal not in this time that we live now, just seeing how things are just crazy and wild, but God, that we would look and see how you're working on our behalf for our good, for our eternity. God, I just ask now that you'd help us to live as citizens of your kingdom and not just as citizens found in this world today. And Lord, I ask now that you'd help us to pull away from these lessons from Daniel so far already, the fact that you are in control when it seems like everything else is crazy and it doesn't, we don't know which way to look and what to believe, one thing is true, that you are in charge and that you're in control. You're sovereign over nations, you're sovereign over your kingdom, and you're sovereign in your judgment. Lord, I ask now as we come to you with these prayer requests tonight that you would honor them and that you would answer them according to your will and your way. And we do ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a prayer request,